Hi, this is Renya Nanthapantala, founder of For a Green Environment, and I want to thank you for joining us today for another episode of Women in Environmental Science. This podcast is to inspire other people and to educate them about the work researchers in environmental science are doing, specifically the issues they face in the industry, the solutions they make, the roadblocks they push through, and most importantly, what they are learning to teach the society to keep the environment clean. Keep listening to hear this episode of Women in Environmental Science. Welcome to Women in Environmental Science. I'm Srenya and I have Dr. Ari with me. So thank you so much for coming to my podcast today, Dr. Ari. Um, well, thank you for having me. <laughs> of course. Um, and just to understand the work that you have been doing on things like atmospheric chemistry, um, environmental health, climate science, and, and much more, um, could you elaborate on the work that you are doing? Yeah, that's a very uh, difficult question for me right now, but I will try. Mm -hmm. So um, I started off um, as an atmospheric chemist. I really mm -hmm. was interested in um, air pollution in right. Asia, especially. And I wanted to understand air pollution in China at that time and then the impact in the East Asia. Mm -hmm. um, and then I got interested in the relationship between air pollution and climate change. And so that led me to um, look more into emissions and where mm. these emissions come from and if we can detect um, better using the atmospheric data. Mm -hmm. And then we started working on agricultural soil. Uh, so even though I was just a modeler at the beginning, I uh, started doing some measurements after I came to Emory. Mm -hmm. And so that's why um, my lab does to measure soil greenhouse gas emissions and also soil ammonia emissions at the University of Georgia agricultural mm. farm. Yeah. But then because of that, um, we got interested in urban farming and mm. then we just found this um, big heavy metal contamination in the west side of Atlanta. You were just mentioning Flint, but yeah. that's, uh, to me, that's very similar to Flint. So we're finding a lot of lead um, problems. Mm -hmm. So that became an um, EPA Superfund site. Wow. And that is a very big um, environmental injustice neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And so um, we are really hoping that, um, you know, we can do some science together to make the situation better. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of uh, what we work on right now. So like air pollution, climate change, uh, but also soil contamination too. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. I'm like, just going to throw all the way back to um, air pollution, like air pollution and climate change. Um, I, was, I was interviewing someone um, and she was looking into like how um, the aerosol particles like that are like the dust particles are like in the polar regions and that's like warming up the um, it's, it's on the like snow and that's like causing the sunlight to get absorbed, which is melting the ice, therefore increasing climate change. Right. So, right. Yeah. That was, yeah, that, so, mm -hmm. go ahead. Right. Sorry. So like one of the areas that now I work in is Nepal. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've been doing some, um, so some of the folks that I collaborate with do the measurements on site. Mm -hmm. And then what we do is the modeling, um, the impacts of these emissions in Nepal and in the South, um, South Asian region. But there's a lot of um, interest there because it's called a third pole. It's mm -hmm. such a very high mountain areas. Yeah. And so it's a very important region. And just like you were saying, there's a lot of glaciers. And so um, black carbon coming from diesel and brick kilns get deposited there and then melt. So that's a very big problem there. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, this was Nepal? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. So like, do you, by any chance, was there like, is there, if, I'm not sure if you know, but like the, the microplastics, has that like been impacting the area there? Yeah. So I, I, I've just recently been very interested in microplastics for a different study. Um, mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily microplastics, but like one of the studies that we've been doing is also household air quality. Right. And oh, then they burn mm -hmm. plastics in the household and that's extremely toxic. And then, mm -hmm. so we've been trying to see like, how can we actually, you know, raise awareness of the problem so that they wouldn't use plastic in mm -hmm. the cook stoves 
Um, one of the projects that we've been hoping to study is in Guatemala, um, because that's a very problem problem. So, um, yeah, but I, I don't know about the microplastic, but I, I wouldn't be surprised because there's so much tourism, right? And mm -hmm. then the tourism brings plastic, a lot of plastic. So <laughs> everyone there probably, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, everyone there probably has like two plastic water bottles with them. <laughs> yeah. Generating so, lots of microplastics. Yeah. Right, exactly. So, yeah. and then they get, there's no infrastructure as well. So that's a very big problem. Mm -hmm. um, usually the, well, we were working on uh, the very recent paper is on garbage burning. Mm -hmm. So because there's no uh, waste management infrastructure, what people would do is to burn, you know, just outside of your house. So there are very small garbage burning happening everywhere. When you look, um, when, when I went there in Nepal, that was before mm -hmm. they banned it. And so there were a lot of small garbage fires going on everywhere that you could see from the higher up. But yeah, wow. That I've, I've never seen that. Like I'm blessed to say that like, I've never seen like garbage, garbage burning, but do they just like burn garbage is that basically <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah that's exactly what happened so they would collect garbage mm -hmm. from your household okay. and they would burn it is there like a resource that they're trying to extract out of the garbage oh no, they just want to get rid of it and then since there is no way to get rid of it like otherwise they would have to dump it somewhere right, right? and then there's a lot of dump but <laughs> <laughs> but you know that's the easiest way to get rid of the garbage sometimes just to burn. So right, that happens yeah. quite a bit. I remember like um, talking about that with some, some people I knew, like, why don't we just burn the garbage on landfills and make more space? But then I realized that's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> very bad, very, very bad. So right. you also, yeah, you also talked about like the, um, in Atlanta, you like found the heavy soil, um, sorry, heavy metal soil contamination, right? So like, right. Um, and that became a super fun site. Well, I've had some, like I told you before we started recording, like um, the, the Cage Bivalves, that's a super fun site. Um, it's Newtown Creek in New York. So we were like, we're like looking at the Cage Bivalves and Neary's um, and seeing how they're impacted because in, in Newtown Creek, there's like PCBs, dioxin, dioxin furans, um, PAHs, there's right. oil contaminated, there's, there's a lot of stuff. And right. when I personally went there, there was like this white discharge kind of thing. So could you, could, so how did you find out that there was this, this heavy metal soil contamination? Yeah, so it was very uh, serendipitous. So what mm -hmm. happened was one of my then PhD student was working on this soil trace gas emissions from the UGA farm, the University of Georgia farm. Mm -hmm. And then we realized that this research, um, even though it's very exciting for us, it's not really related to health. And he was in the environmental health sciences program. <laughs> so we wanted to link it a little bit more to health. Mm -hmm. And then we found out that um, the city of Atlanta was trying to um, increase urban agriculture within Atlanta. And then uh, we found out also that there is no regulation to test the soil before we grow food. And so we thought, okay, that doesn't sound like a very good idea that you don't test the soil before, mm -hmm. you know, you start producing food. Um, and so we said, okay, why don't we test the soil um, so that we can just be sure that there is no contamination. Right. And then while we were doing that, there was one site that had pretty high levels of lead. Oh. Uh, and so that made us a little bit concerned. And then um, we were paired with a community organization called Historic Westside Gardens in the west side of Atlanta. And they were very interested in working with us to see um, if their soil that they are using for community gardens in the neighborhood was safe. And so we said, okay, let's, let's work it out. And then, so we started testing a lot of household gardens that they work with. And then there were several household gardens that had high levels of lead. And that was really concerning for us because one of them um, was especially made for kids. And that just like broke our hearts, you know, and oh, nobody no. knew about it. And they were telling us that, that there were so many kids with developmental issues and you know like we don't know if that 
that is related at all, but that that could be possible that, you know, the children might have been exposed and then that was the reason. And so we were wondering where that soil contamination comes from. And then that uh, household owner told us that she sees a lot of strange looking rock pieces around her house. And then that turned out to be slag, which is the industrial waste coming from smelting most likely. And then when we tested that, that slag, it was about uh, 3000 ppm. Um, the, the threshold, the level is about uh, 400 ppm by EPA. Mm-hmm. And so it was extremely high. And then the soil around it was also um, more than like 1200 ppm. Mm-hmm. And so um, we were able to report to the EPA and then EPA started the investigation. Um, so that led to, um, yeah, so that at first was about 60 sites around that area, but now it expanded to uh, 1,087 lots. Wow. Yeah, so they're finding um, quite high um, contamination rate. So it was not just in that confided area, but we are very not sure like how big the area might be that's contaminated. So that's a very big concern for us. Absolutely. And where do we, do we know like where this lead came from? Yeah. So that's what we also tried to find out, but the historical, um, you know, I don't do, I was very bad in history and <laughs> I don't really know how I'm supposed to do historical research. So, you know, we, we tried to talk with the history professor, the librarian has been very helpful. And so we've been trying to do some archival work. We know that there used to be about 10 or so smelt, lead smelting sites in Natlana. Mm-hmm but we cannot really trace where they might have been or which companies. It's, it's very difficult. So right. yeah, we're not really sure. Yeah, I was, I was um, so I remember how I was talking about my uh, Newtown Creek thing. So I was just looking into like where these contaminants came from. Yeah. It's very hard to like really pinpoint exactly this is the company. Like it's, I, I understand, I completely understand. And did you say like the small rock pieces, was it slag? Yeah, it's okay. SLAG. Yeah, gotcha. So, how does this like slag and the and the lead? How does that impact like kids and adults? Is it just like um, water contamination that was in 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 um, Flint? How is it like? Because, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> so yeah, so it's very different. So what happens usually from the soil is that some some um, children have like the pika mm-hmm. um, with them, so that they would like to eat soil. So they deliberately eat soil. Uh, so obviously, if you do that, then, you know, if you <laughs> are eating these pieces or the soil that's contaminated, then that's the way that you would be exposed. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if the contamination is very high and some plants are able to take up the heavy metal, and so then by eating like the root vegetables, like kale or carrots, nice. you could be contaminated as well. So there are different... Um, ways that you would be contaminated, but we're most worried about the kids or adults, um, you know, not maybe deliberately, but they would be uh, inhaling some dust pieces because of mm-hmm. working in the gardens um, or working in the backyard. Right. Yeah, that's, that's major. So like, how is the EPA handling what's the super fun site? <laughs> Yeah, so what they do is they would first um, ask the household owners if um, they would be willing to have the EPA test the soil. Mm-hmm. And once they agree, then the EPA would come and then test the whole lot. And if that lot um, is above this 400 ppm mm-hmm. um, milligrams per kilogram of lead in the soil, then they would excavate the soil. So they would completely remove up to about two feet of soil Mm -hmm. from the surface and then put the new clean soil and then they would do the landscaping on top. Okay. Yeah. So that's working. I hope hope it's working. (laughs) So there are 1087 lots, I told you, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And then currently approximately, I think about 400 uh, lots they were able to get the household owner's permission to test the soil. Okay. So there's still a lot to go. 
Um, it's been very difficult to get the trust within the neighborhood mm -hmm. uh, to actually get the soil tested. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So kind of like tying human health into climate change, is there like, what ha has like climate change really like impacted our health in, in major ways? Like um, there's so many factors to climate change. Like if you want to like focus on like one, like, like only air pollution or like only, I don't know, soil contaminant, there's like so many things, but like, if you like, go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, so I think there is a lot of ways, uh, just like you were saying, uh, climate change affects your health. Um, so, you know, we would think about the heat. Um, I think heat kills uh, people so much more than we think about. Mm -hmm. And so the extreme heat event uh, is very important. And then some of the elderly people get really impacted by that, especially if you don't have access to AC. And in some countries, um, you know, if if the ambient temperature goes so high and if you don't have the AC, that's going to be very detrimental. But I think another thing is that we don't necessarily think about um, how climate change is linked to nutrition. I think that is very important. Um, we are finding that there's going to be lower nutritional values as we get to um, warmer environment. And that is very concerning because the crop yields could get lower because of the higher tropospheric ozone concentrations. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, if you're going to get lower nutrition, then that is, um, I think, very big problem. Absolutely. So, yeah. And then, of course, flooding and the hurricanes. And all There's of so much. It's like all this bad stuff, but we can prevent right. it. I'm optimistic. We can prevent it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm very optimistic because, you know, there are people like you, right? Uh, the younger generation are going to solve the problem. So. And also scientists like you who are willing to speak up and share their research with the world to help them understand, like, okay, this is what's going to happen. <laughs> fix it. <laughs> yeah, just a small it, piece, yeah. but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So like, um, I, 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 like you told me, we've been, we've been like talking about agriculture and all this kind of thing. So like, I actually, um, I was speaking to this gardener. He was, he's in like living in like the heart of New York city and he grows like gardens where he, um, he does like a no, he was like a no till, no dig mantra. And I'm wondering, like, is that like always the way to go about it? Like what, what's, what's good about not tilling and not digging? And is that something everyone can do? Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's great. Um, so what, that's one of the, I guess, the experiments that we're doing. Mm -hmm. So we're not comparing no-till with the tillage per se, but mm -hmm. the, so the study has found that um, if you don't till, then you can um, sequester more carbon. We can, you can increase the um, amount of carbon in the soil. And so that's great. Um, but what we are trying to also see is how much uh, soil emissions um, change because of these agricultural practices. And so uh, what we are finding is that if you don't till and then if you don't put fertilizer, is that going to be good for the environment? And so what mm. we tried was we tried to put, um, this was the idea coming from my collaborator, Dr. Nick Hill at the University of Georgia. So he created this mechanism called living mulch. So what he does is you wouldn't till and then you would put white clover in the winter. Mm -hmm. And so the white clover grows in winter, especially in the South um, Georgia, I mean, South US <laughs> or Southeastern US. I don't think it would work in the North because it would, uh, it's yeah. get, it, it gets too cold. But in the Southern US, um, the weather is still mild uh, for the clover to still live over winter. And so they would live well. And then in the spring, when the time comes to plant, he would create a strip and then uh, plant corn in between the white clover. Mm -hmm. So then usually corn uses a lot of uh, <laughs> synthetic fertilizer, the nitrogen fertilizer, mm -hmm. but you don't need to put it anymore because clover as a nitrogen fixing plant can provide fertilizer. So is this like the double provide nitrogen to the soil? Okay, I think yeah, you're breaking yeah. up a bit. You okay? Oh yeah, same, same with you. <laughs> so I said like, 
Is it like the double cropping method? Is that what it is? No, so it's like an intercropping. So you're ah, planting, yes, yeah. So you're having cover crop, but still live uh, throughout with mm. the plant, the cash crop that you have. Right. And so with that, uh, we thought that that would decrease the greenhouse gas emissions, including nitrous oxide. Mm-hmm. But what happened was it actually had the highest nitrous oxide emissions. So it's very difficult, um, I think. Like no-till is great for something, mm-hmm. but then um, just no-till I don't think helps. And then we really have to think about carbon and nitrogen at the same time because they are very much coupled. And so for greenhouse gases as well, nitrous oxide is the third largest greenhouse gas. Right. And we don't really think about that. Um, so how can we take both into account and come up with agricultural technique that's best? Uh, it's what we're trying, but it's extremely hard. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Like, you got to take in all the factors. Right. I, I wish, um, honestly, I wish like someone would genetically modify like um, <laughs> a, 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 like a seed and make it perfect for droughts, flooding, all these different things and yeah, not exactly. producing too much carbon, all, all this stuff. Right. That's exactly right. So that's what we have to do. But then have you read uh, the book uh, Seas of Science? No, I have not. It's a really interesting book because it talks about how people have come to be against uh, the GM crops. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then that's a very nice history. And then this is actually written by an author um, who used to be really pro, uh, no, really against GM crops and then realized that uh, that was so wrong. Yeah and how, um, yeah, how the policies are really making it difficult, so. So, so like, do they just like talk, I, 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 like I said, I haven't read the book, but I will look into it, it does seem interesting. I, like a lot of people are like, no GMOs, but like a lot of our food is GMOs, so like, <laughs> right. it's like, they might not even realize that they are ingesting GMOs, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think in I, I think it was ex, ex, uh, especially the case in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of um, policies against GMOs, uh, but then what hurt what was hurt the most was um, in the global south. I think there was so much potential, but because of that, um, a lot of the NGOs being against GMOs um, that could not be implemented, and I think that hurt a lot of people that don't have access to food. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I noticed that you're like very, very interested in like all these different things. And I think that's cool because you can kind of like tie them in with each other. So my question is like, like I told you earlier, I might've, yeah, like I told you earlier, um, like the Flint, Michigan thing is how I got interested in doing like research and water. Um, so like, what got you interested in doing like research on the soil, on the atmosphere and all this stuff? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, so yeah, I think I would like to know um, your background, like a, a further background, right? Like when you are very, very uh, young, well, you're, you're still young now, but <laughs> <laughs> so for me, um, I was actually very interested in the environmental issues um, since I was in elementary school. Like mm-hmm. I was very much of a, a geek uh, wanting, to, <laughs> wanting to recycle and wanting to reduce waste uh, and wanting to reduce the use of uh, water and stuff. And so I got first interested in the linear motor car um, mm-hmm. using um, like how can we actually make a transportation system that's using less fossil fuels. And so I looked into that when I was in the sixth grade. And then uh, we moved to London when I was uh, 13, when when I went to the middle school. And so um, I don't know why, but somehow I was reading some kind of a book. I don't really remember why. That's a very much of a shame. <laughs> but then I was reading it and then I look, I, I, I somehow decided that I really wanted to study air pollution. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was really not a nature kid. I was not very in- interested in the wild or I was never interested in like playing outside. Mm-hmm. But I was always very fascinated with pollution. Uh, 
Right. And so I thought I wanted to solve these pollution problems using engineering, like using the technology. I thought the technology could solve the world. So that's yeah. how I got interested. Absolutely. For me, um, like I said, I live near Michigan. In Michigan, there's like, there's like all these, uh, there's just like water everywhere, mm-hmm. <laughs> like the lakes. And I remember my parents <laughs> would always take me there. And I would, I just... Uh, and also, like like I said, um, I I did research. I'm I'm doing research on how like algicides are impacting algae and like if they're like if they're actually like useful or not, like a meta analysis. And like um, I got interested in that because, like I said, Flint it impacted people like so much, and it really interested me in like how are all these like contaminants that we're trying to clean our water with really impacting these living organisms. So like algicides are like, they're copper um, and, and um, all these other heavy metals. And they're just gonna go in like our ponds and lakes, which are where we get our water from, like from the tap, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that was where it all started for me. <laughs> I see, so you really got interested since Flint, is that right? Yeah, Flint is like the domino. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. But why did you decide to, I'm sorry, I'm interviewing you now, but (laughs) why did you decide to um, work on the algae? Um, Well, algae is very interesting. I I have like, it's, it's like, um, it's strange, right? Like, it's just a strange organism. And with algae, I was, so usually I was like, I'm like thinking about people and um, caged bivalves, like just bivalves in general and algae they're like they're kind of essential to the ecosystem right an ecosystem can't thrive without them they're the like well the algae is like the the primary producer and the cage bivalves are like the um the the first consumer primary consumer right hope i'm getting these names right and like they're kind of like the basis if they're getting impacted by these contaminants then the rest of the ecosystem is getting impacted by that too. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. Because um, when you said algae, so like I've been very interested in algae from very different uh, perspective, Mm -hmm. I guess, because the nitrogen fertilizer, when you use a lot of them, Mm -hmm. then that what happens in, in like the Midwest is that it all goes down to the Gulf Mm -hmm. with the Mississippi river. And then there's a huge algal blooms, right? So yeah, I've been trying to figure out like how to reduce it, but that's yeah, very interesting. Algicides are not the way, let me tell you that, from what we've been doing so far. But we're just like looking at all these multiple papers and looking at their data. So, because we okay. can't go out and do it, COVID restrictions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I see, I see. But so you're still researching on Flint over there? Uh, no, Flint was like, is just my interest there was no research done with that yeah it just um it scared me how much water is water is important obviously (laughs) and it does a lot of damage because we make it do damage right so yeah oh wow we went on (laughs) on a very big segue okay so (laughs) (laughs) right so um as we were talking about earlier like um, microplastics have been like found everywhere and like how how are microplastics really playing a role in, in climate change wow that's a very big question right because plastic <laughs> is everywhere really like I can look around and I see a plastic bag with my plastic rubber bands for my braces <laughs> right well yeah but go ahead sorry no, no. So I think, um, yeah, it's very difficult to say. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the biggest problem is how much fossil fuel is being used for production of the plastics. So mm-hmm. how much that might have contributed to climate change. Um, I think that is a very interesting question. I don't have an answer to that. Mm-hmm. But that is also uh, very polluting, right? Not just... Um, I think, I think to put it differently, the fossil fuel companies have been using plastics to kind of survive. Mm-hmm. And so they've been able to produce plastics. And um, so there was a very interesting documentary on it. Um, I don't, 
I don't know how plastics uh, themselves are impacting climate change. I think that's a very, um, I, I don't know if that is the case. Mm -hmm. um, I don't necessarily think so, but I think in producing plastics, um, that is definitely contributing to climate change, if that yeah. makes sense. Absolutely. Like it's, it's, it's the source, like where the plastic is coming from. Right. What matters more. But of course yeah. the micro, like the microplastics definitely matter. Like they're getting to the ocean. Right. Um, animals are being impacted, but really what's contributing to specifically climate change is the um, production of them. Right. That's what I would think. But then obviously, just like you were saying, microplastics themselves have so much impact on other yeah. things. And then if they are, also, um, well, before they become microplastics, if they are burnt, that mm -hmm. was also another way they would contribute to climate change. So, yeah, yeah, many different ways. Yeah, absolutely. And like, um, I so I know that you did re uh, a couple projects on like atmospheric chemistry, like modeling aerosols and um, and, and the tropic ozone. So, could you elaborate a little bit more on what you have done? <laughs> Sure. So like what I'm, what I'm trying to understand is the amount of emissions, where they come from, and then mm -hmm. from what sector. And, and then we would try to model that to see if our estimates are correct. And then mm -hmm. by modeling, for example, different emissions estimates, we can see how air quality model simulations are so different depending on which inputs we use. And so that means that we really need to understand the emissions better to be able to um, simulate air quality. And that has a lot of impact on the policy as well, because if you wanted to um, make the air quality better, then you want to know how to target different sectors. But if you have no idea <laughs> where the emissions are coming from, then that can get very difficult. Right. And also another thing is to really think about the sources that we don't necessarily um, think about. Mm -hmm. So like garbage burning, just like we mm -hmm. were talking about, and the brick kiln emissions, mm -hmm. and the agricultural residue burning, wildfires, those spontaneous events as well, they make it very difficult for us to be able to understand um, air quality as a whole, right? So mm -hmm. trying to be able to simulate them um, is quite hard. Yeah, I could imagine, right? So I, I, you just talked about brick kilns. Like I was, I was looking into them um, after learning more about you, right? So like lots of people don't really know about these, about how much um, emissions these are like producing. So right. what, why, like why are these brick kilns not, why, why does the public really not know about these? Why do you think at least? <laughs> Yeah, I think that's because like in the global north, you don't really see them, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. So, I didn't yeah. know what they were until I, until I looked into um, your, your interest. Yeah. Right. So I think there are so many different sources that we don't really come across um, in the U.S. or in the global north. And then only when you go to different countries, you see, oh, wow, they're really polluting sources that are in the, uh, that are where you, that's very visible. Right. So I don't really know what the best way is to raise awareness on that. But I mm -hmm. think um, right now, I think the technology is getting better. We're able to um, see the videos <laughs> very quickly and we're able to take pictures mm -hmm. and see the satellite imagery and things like that. So hopefully we will know better, but there's a lot to go still. Yeah, absolutely. And like speaking of other countries, so like your lab has um, collected data from places like Tibet, um, U.S., uh, China, Brazil, and and Rwanda, like all these all these different places, to like simulate air quality and uh, nitrous oxide um, emissions from the soil. So what's the process to collect this data, and like how does it differ? Because these are completely different places with like completely different economical statuses, different climates, all these like things. So how is the data different and how do you collect it? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, what we would do, so the most important thing is to have a great collaborator in the countries that you want to go to because mm -hmm. without them, it's never possible. 
Right. And so we were able to go to Nepal because um, we have a very good, I have a very good friend um, who is half Nepali and half um, Swiss. Mm-hmm. And he, is, he was working in the Nepal, well, that's an international organization based in Nepal called mm-hmm. um, ISIMOD, International Center for Integrated Mountain Development. Right. Um, so he was very instrumental in making the field work possible for us. And then all these collaborators had elaborate equipment that they shipped. <laughs> so I personally cannot do that. So whenever we go measure, uh, we would just have very small equipment. Um, so in Tibet, it was just a personal exposure monitor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we would have a collaborator that we work with. And then we would go um, to different houses to have um, these people wear these monitors. And in Rwanda, we had another collaborator um, that was able to um, show us the agricultural site that we could measure at. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, we took our our instrument to um, measure over there. And so the same thing for China. Um, So the first thing uh, is to have great collaborators who would be able to have you and then make sure that your equipment (laughs) is simple enough that you can take them and then measure. And yeah, it's just uh, the manpower after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how is the data different in these areas? Oh, I see. Yeah. So the data are very different, especially for like uh, ammonia, for example. Mm-hmm. So we were measuring ammonia in these different countries. Uh, we are finding very high levels in China compared to um, like the US or Rwanda. And air quality is very different. Like when we go to Tibet, Indian air quality is so clean. (laughs) And then you go inside and it is extremely, extremely polluted. Mm -hmm. And so um, sometimes like I will go into the household and I cannot stop crying because the air pollution is so bad. And it's, (laughs) you, you cannot even see people inside because the visibility is so low because of the you know the burning inside the household and i'm crying and everybody's like are you okay (laughs) and i'm like no i'm not okay this is very polluted so people are like what 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 do you mean air pollution there's no air pollution so it is quite something I can only imagine what they think when they come to like, like I can, I can, I can see, right? Like I can, right. I'm able to see all the way over there and I'm, I could imagine, I can only imagine what they would think if they came over to my house and like just looked around, but wow, exactly. that is, that is, wow. Yeah. So were you able to like um, educate them on like, okay, this is bad. <laughs> um, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, so like this was, this has been such a big issue um, for me for a very long time. So what is good and what is bad, right? So at first we've been talking to them um, that we think this is air pollution. And then what they tell me is that air pollution is what happens in the city. And this is not air pollution. And some people told me like in Tibet that the pollution coming from burning yak dung, which they do, it could be sacred because the yucks are sacred. Mm-hmm. So it, it has been very difficult for me to say what is good or bad because mm-hmm. that's how they've been living, right? Right. And so what I could say is that being exposed to that kind of pollution is not good for their health <laughs> because of that particular matter. But then I don't really know how to convey that so right. you know so it has been very difficult for me to to talk with them and how they would change it as well right they are burning that fuel because it's free and it's not like they have other sources i mean very rich people in the neighborhood had the gas stove but there was only like one person in the whole village so it's clearly impossible and then with their income that was not possible Right. And then so what they did was um, one of the leaders um, installed a chimney Mm -hmm. in the stove. 
So that was a great improvement. But what happened was the chimney stuck itself, sometimes didn't go outside of the tent. Mm -hmm. So the stuck was stuck <laughs> inside the household, right? right? And then so it didn't really do much. It wasn't venting. Mm -hmm. And also if the chimney stacks were not very high enough, then they were, it, it's a very high altitude. So they would come back, right? you know? And so it was very difficult issues. Um, and yeah, we were very, so that's kind of the thing. I think we need to have uh, maybe like anthropologists that would work with the actual people to see what they are thinking and what would be the best way to change their behavior and what is economically possible. Because it's not a technical issue, I think. Right. Because technological solutions have been uh, proposed so many times and then it has failed quite miserably. And I think the reason why is we need to understand how people think and what people can actually do and what's available for them and then go with what we can do to improve. And what does improvement mean, right? I mean, the improvement is very different for different people. Mm -hmm. And like, so, their, yeah, their perspectives, basically their perspectives on like the air pollution and if it is actually air pollution to them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that absolutely makes sense. It, it's kind of like, um, what would like, like, what would you say if someone didn't believe in climate change, like climate change was man-made kind of like that. So I guess my next question to you is if you could change someone's mind <laughs> and they thought like, I mean, honestly, I think that it's all about perspectives. If they think like, if it's maybe cultural, like their culture specifically doesn't um, like, like the, like, like they don't produce any toxic waste, then like they, they think that, oh, it's not our fault, right? Like, what would you say to someone who um, thinks it's not man-made? Yeah, that's, that's very difficult. So um, Chris. <laughs> I think um, I was reading this Yale, um, Yale has this very nice uh, website mm -hmm. uh, and then they've been surveying a lot of people. Um, they have seven Americas. And there are, they categorize people depending on how people view climate change. Mm -hmm. And then one category is the denier. Yes. And what they say is that climate deniers are not going to change their perspectives. So no matter what you say, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So you should be trying to change their perspectives because it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's what, how I understood what they were saying, right? Yeah. But I do think there is a point to that. Um, so uh, my, what I've been talking with my students is that it's probably not very worth it to try to talk to these people that don't necessarily believe in climate change, but really talk with people that don't know enough or that are not sure about what they're supposed to be reading or what they're supposed to be thinking about so that they might change their views. Um, so that would be my take, but also um, I think more in, more important thing is that it's it's sometimes what we do is you know this is correct and this is incorrect and for climate change that's definitely the case we know science right mm -hmm. and so we know this is correct but I think it's also important to keep in mind how can we talk to people with different perspectives like in Tibet as well we think differently. But then we, sh we need to be able to respect people um, in a way um, because we are, we've grown up in different places and we have different uh, ways we think. And sometimes that could lead to a new finding as well. And so being able to, I think, talk about things that you don't necessarily agree with in a manner that is respectful Absolutely. is very important, <laughs> mm -hmm. but that doesn't really happen, right? Mm -hmm. And so yeah. how can we make that happen so that we don't get angry and then we're, we don't start yelling at each other, but we understand how we think. Um, I think that's uh, what we need to be working on. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like we, I think, I think if we like um, change the policy, I, I, I'm not sure, like, like by like um, 
getting these people who can who can really make a difference, like who can change laws um, and really influence people to like, okay, maybe without even with that, if even if they don't understand climate change, like don't do this, do this <laughs> kind of like way of thinking, right? So um, what are, so, so like people, scientists like you, you have a chance, you, you understand climate change, you understand the impacts and you've seen these, these, these terrible detrimental like effects of, of climate change and, and contamination. So what are some ways, like some green ways that you may like help preserve the climate I think the most important actually is to start the education earlier. Yeah. And so I think the education system really needs to change elementary mm -hmm. school uh, and then the middle school, I think are very important. And then I also think in the US, maybe um, thinking about how can we um, agree to disagree and then to really be able to um, try to have like more critical thinking Mm -hmm. uh, already on would probably be more helpful and then it's okay that you're not the best you know like I feel there is so much praises uh, and that's great but I think that's also potentially leading to um, some difficulties mm -hmm. so how can we be more challenged early on so that we don't necessarily think um, I so I guess you know it just becomes like um, impossible to talk about some difficult topics together, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And like really understand, I, I guess like, like what you're saying is like, try to look at another person's perspective and, you know, talk about it. Yeah, I think, I think talking about it is so important. And also that needs to happen like earlier um, mm -hmm. so that you're more exposed to different perspectives and yeah but what do you think me about <laughs> like um what needs to change right right okay so i think um like you said people i think uh, there's there's lots of people who need to like speak up um i think if they if the, like you like you're like share you're out here like sharing what you know um and i think that's great i think we need more people who can like really share their knowledge with young students especially like um i was i think before covid started i was planning on going to like um this uh one of like I, I, like an elementary school and i was i was planning on me and my mom we were planning on like talking about um like climate change and plastics in particular and like um use this diy five minute shower timer because that's what i used to use in elementary i would cherish it trust me <laughs> and like really get them into these things because um children can change parents like remember like yeah. the, that five minute timer i was just yeah. talking about um so i would install it in my shower and my parents would use it they would get to work quicker children are great <laughs> I that's might be very biased. true yeah, maybe yeah, yeah. biased but <laughs> no i did the same for my my father too Mm -hmm. Yes, you can. Like, I think by changing children, I mean, not really changing, but like educating them more right, on, exactly. the, on the solutions and then showing them with these solutions, you can fix these problems. Mm -hmm. And they'll be like, yeah, we can do it. You know, Yeah, <laughs> I think I, I agree with you. Education is like the number one thing that I think will fix everything. <laughs> and then also you were saying that Flint made you think about it, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think if more children like at the early stage know about these problems, then I think they would think about the environment a little more differently too. Right. right? I, um, and so yeah. I think, go ahead. No, go ahead. Okay. So for Flint, I, um, I had a personal, personal connection to it. I knew someone who was like um, in Flint and really like experienced them. Mm -hmm. Like we weren't cl close, close, but like we were friends, right? And that's still something. And I was like, that's, that's not good at all. And like right. um, their hair was like um, falling off. There was like rashes. Really? Yeah. She had oh, it bad. <laughs> but oh, wow. like, that's and funny. children in Flint live five years less, um, yeah. a, a average, an average of like five years less than right. other children and mm -hmm. wow it was just heartbreaking but like yeah 
right. Yeah. Um, also, there was this one question that I really wanted to ask you. Um, well, so like, in so how do emission standards like affect air quality? and the economy of the country, since I know you're trying to work to connect with policymakers. Well, that's great. So yeah, one of the projects that I worked on was uh, vehicle emissions mm -hmm. at first. And then what, what I found was that um, by adopting vehicle emission standards, then the countries can actually get the technologies if you are um, the countries of global south, for example, then you will get access to that technology and then that will lead to more economic um, profit. Mm -hmm. Unless <laughs> that country was the least of the least, um, if, if it was the lowest income country, mm -hmm. uh, that profit was not there. And so what I found out was that usually it would lead to the economic benefit for most countries, but not the poorest. And so there is so much, um, I think, to say about environmental justice and, you know, these, how are we going to actually make it work for all countries? I think that it's still, um, that needs to be worked out, but for, at least for vehicle emissions, that's what I was finding. And then, but by uh, implementing emission standards, we see better air quality, obviously, mm -hmm. right? And then that was the similar thing for um, carbon as well. So one of my students in the master's um, degrees, um, Jeff Martin, he was working on um, the <laughs> emission standards for, um, no, not emission standards. He was looking at the state policies mm -hmm. for uh, reducing carbon emissions from power plants and what kind of policies are useful. So there are definitely different ways that policies can be useful. And from that study, we were finding that mandate um, policies are effective in reducing carbon emissions from power plants, but voluntary policies are not. Um, right. And I think that's kind of, um, that kind of is intuitive but to be able to figure out what kind of mandatory policies among all of those um, is useful, um, I think is potentially helpful to figure out what should states do if there is no federal level policies. And hopefully now we will see more federal level standards and policies that are going to be in place soon. Yeah. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And like, um, poorer countries, like just poorer places, um, doesn't, it can be like a poorer part of a city. Um, they're like really, really facing the, the, the problems, the, the impacts of the problems that others are creating. So I, right. I definitely agree with you on that one. Yeah, exactly. So then air quality could be bad already. And then mm -hmm. if they're not getting the economic benefit either, that is very problematic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially with air pollution, you're like breathing it in and you really don't even know about it, right? Right. You can't stop breathing. Yeah, um, exactly. You're right. So what is something that most people don't really know about air, that what's in our air? <laughs> huh, I don't know what, what. So I guess, hmm, that's, that's very interesting. What do we not know about air pollution? I guess... Hmm. Would it be like people might not know what they're breathing in, like like horrible dust particles from factories miles away? <laughs> I would think that people know a bit a lot more about air pollution actually than soil contamination. Mm -hmm. Don't you think? Yeah, of course. I yeah. definitely. Most, oh, so, wow. yeah. And then I'm I but I I do think that a lot more people in China know about air pollution than in the US. Right. And so one of the, I think one of the reasons is the communication too. Mm -hmm. So um, there was a photographer in China that took um, photos from the same place at the same time every day for 365 days and showcased um, the air quality. 
So you can see the blue sky days and then the gray sky days continuing and then blue sky days appearing. And it was fascinating. Absolutely. And so that I think changed how people thought about air quality. Until then, there was a lot of people that said there's no air pollution in China, like when I was there. Mm -hmm. When I first went there in China um, in 2006, mm -hmm. I asked people there and they said, no, there's only, that's only fog. They said it wasn't air pollution. Mm -hmm. So I think how people can change so quickly um, is, um, is very encouraging, but at the same time, when I work on this topic, um, I think about air pollution all the time, but I think that's not how people think. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a little bit difficult to know what people don't know sometimes, but um, I do think the awareness is much lower. And that might be just because air pollution is, you know, air quality is much better considering, mm -hmm. you know, what could be in different yeah. parts of the world. Mm -hmm. So, of yeah. course we can improve but yeah yeah like the great smog of london is that what it's called yeah yeah, yeah yeah okay <laughs> like that 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 hurts so many people um, right and that's all because of what's in the air <laughs> that's right yeah. yeah so kind of when i talk about air um over the last few like months we've been noticing like covid19 has like helped with the air pollution, like um, there was like some charts that the air pollution in China was like going down a bit. And how is it, how, how is, has, like, has that helped a lot really? Or like, are, or is it just normal now? Yeah, so that's very interesting. So that might be something that people are not fully understanding maybe. So what we've been seeing is that there is a very big dip in nitrogen oxides. Mm -hmm. um, so what I think many of the um, newspaper articles, for example, have been highlighting is the NOx um, concentrations. Yes. And NOx is very short-lived. And so, and then they come a lot from transport, like vehicle mm -hmm. emissions. Exactly. And so when people don't travel, then we reduce emissions rapidly, and then we can see the decreasing concentrations very quickly. Mm -hmm. But we are actually seeing an increase in tropospheric ozone in places because of the reduction of NOx. And so there is a very uh, interesting nonlinear uh, interaction going on, and that is not really well talked about. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like air pollution is just one species, right? It's not, <laughs> there's a lot of different types uh, of species that's included in air pollution. So the particulate matter um, usually has declined, but tropospheric ozone is another air pollutant that is a pretty big problem in the US as well. And mm -hmm. then um, depending on where you are um, in some places like in China too, in London as well, uh, have seen an increasing ozone. So it's not like everything has gone um, <laughs> declined. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, in terms of how much it has decreased, I, I thought that it would decrease a bit more. Mm -hmm. So it is yeah. a little bit um, discouraging that even under this COVID lockdown, um, it's not improving as much as we could, um, at, I thought we would see. Mm -hmm. especially for like carbon dioxide. Uh, it's only oh. about 20% reduction apparently. And that's a very small increase. And to get to really the Paris Agreement, that means that we really have to do a lot. <laughs> so, yeah. A lot more to go. Mm -hmm. So do you have any ideas on why the ozone has been increasing? Yeah, so this, um, so ozone is a chemical reaction between um, NOx, as I talked about, the nitrogen oxides, mm -hmm. and then the volatile organic compounds. Okay. And so depending on how the concentrations are for both NOx and VOCs, um, and under the sunlight. And so if you have a lot of NOx, um, that's considered um, you are in the VOC limited scheme, and the opposite is if you have a lot of VOCs and then you have very limited NOx. And then so in these regimes, um, how ozone would increase or decrease uh, change 
um, depending on those two species. So it's not like you decreased uh, one and then ozone would decrease. So um, yeah, it's a much more complicated than that. And then because there was so much reduction in the NOx, and then when VOCs didn't reduce so much because the VOCs are, there's a lot of natural component as well. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so um, by having the VOCs about the same level and then the NOx reducing, it actually led to ozone increase. <laughs> there's like we have been saying there's so many effects that we need to take into like consideration right so, yeah absolutely so like will it i i um from what you've said um i don't think this would have like a major impact on our environment but yes i did i really did hope because there was like in venice there was like um and the dolphins came back and it was, yeah. it was like a lot of newspaper articles on that, that I was reading, but they never mentioned that. So, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think if there's, if there's anything else that you would, um, that you want, that you'd want to talk about, go ahead. <laughs> Just to like wrap up our interview. So um, what's the plan um, that you have for this um, podcast? For this podcast, I hope that I'm able to talk to as many um, women scientists as possible um, and like really understand like their, their, their role in, 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 um, in helping climate, like helping, helping not, not just climate change, just helping the earth, right? Like, there's so many different problems that we can be fixing. And it's just, I just hope that I can like understand all of these and help other people understand them too. So I see, I see. Yeah. So Education. you're going to continue? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, I, we also started the alarms of MRA um, so we send students to the climate change negotiation. Mm -hmm. um, and so the students that have gone with me to these, what we call COP, um, we decided to start the podcast uh, just because of like what you're saying, like how, what can we do to enhance um, not, you know, uh, knowledge distribution kind of. Mm -hmm. And so we call it amplifier, uh, hoping. <laughs> <laughs> that we amplify people's voices um, that we don't necessarily hear from. Mm -hmm. But then like, and then when we were working on that since summer and then I got your email and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that somebody is also trying to do, you know, from your perspective. I thought that was really neat. Yeah. And just like, really really diving deep into your research or any any anyone's research and and like just understanding what what you really like i've i've noticed um so you know that question i asked you about how uh, how when you got connected like to the environment and you're like okay i want to work on this what i've noticed is that everyone i've interviewed has had that connection at a very young age well like just just at a young age when they mm -hmm. were students right so which is also why i'm trying to like um really really like touch on students the most right because when because i feel like everyone has their connection to the environment they just need to find it right yeah exactly i totally agree like like you know how i asked you that question on like um what green things might you be doing um if someone like to help the earth, you don't need to give up what you love. Let's say you love biking. This is like an example I give right. to everybody. <laughs> if you love biking, you can bike to work every day or like something like that, right? Yeah. So there's something you can always do to help the environment and you just need to find it. Yeah, that's very true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Especially like young students, like, like, um, when I was young, I didn't like animals, cause, oh, oh, well, insects in particular, because 
Mosquitoes love me either. <laughs> I know they love me too. <laughs> yeah. But then I really, I mean, like, I still don't like mosquitoes. Let me get that clear. Mm-hmm. But I've grown to like things like algae and neries, like these worms that are huge and can potentially harm you. They're, they're wow. cute. <laughs> but they wow. help me with like sediment analysis. So, oh, yeah, that's true. They're great. I like them. Yeah. Except I just, wouldn't like prefer to go near them, but you know, I know I'll look at the data. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah. So is there anything else that you'd want to mention on our podcast? Um, no, I don't think so, but I hope, um, I was clear enough and I'm sorry. Um, I, I wasn't as prepared as I had wanted to be. So I hope that was okay. Absolutely. Great. Well, we have been speaking to Dr. Airy, um, and I just want to thank you so much for joining me here and sharing your thoughts um, about like climate change, um, atmospheric chemistry, and much more. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was so fun. If you enjoyed this thrilling episode, be sure to subscribe to be notified when a new episode is posted. Don't forget to share women in environmental science with your friends and family so they can learn more about the problems that are being solved in the science industry. I hope you enjoyed this episode and learned about the work researchers are doing in this field. This is Serenia Nantapandala signing off. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.